Good morning, church. Find a Bible and find Mark chapter 12, if you would. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've reached a place where one of the major themes throughout the Gospel is the authority in which Jesus Christ does what Jesus Christ does. You'll notice just before this text, in eleven twenty-seven and following, how the Pharisees, how the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious people question Jesus Christ. You'll remember throughout the Gospel accounts, every time Jesus does something that they don't particularly like, they look for a way to trap Him. They look for a way to destroy Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the context as we get into Mark chapter 12. Let's read. From the English Standard Version, it reads this way. And He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. The man leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one another, one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent the son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left and went away. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful for this day. I'm grateful for this opportunity. God, I'm thankful for your presence here this morning. As we open your word this morning, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, even this text that perhaps most, if not all of us, are familiar with. By way of the Holy Spirit, would you teach us something new today? Would you teach us not just for knowledge's sake, not so that we'll be puffed up, not so that our head will become bigger, but so that we'll understand our responsibility in this world? Pray, God, that you would eliminate distractions, help us to hear clearly, and help us to respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. How many of us like authority? Anybody like authority? Anybody like power? You like power if you're in charge. You like authority if you're in in charge. Words like obedience or like accountability aren't something we like. Thank you for mentioning accountability in our Bible study this morning, Jackie. But that's typically something we don't like. We don't like words like obedience or accountability. When the Apostle Paul uses the word submit, remember that? Submit to your leadership, submit to your elders, submit one to another. We either write that off as Paul writing to another context, we just simply get frustrated and throw up a little bit in our mouths because we don't like the word submit. We don't like to not be in control. How do I know that? Because we all have sin in our lives, amen? God forgive us. So the fact of the matter is we all like to be in control. We're all sinners. We all sin even after coming to meet Jesus. And sin is all about control. I just mentioned to you just prior to this text in Mark chapter 12, The big battle, and has been since Mark chapter 1, is between the religious leaders and this rabbi from from Nazareth called Jesus. And the reason they have a problem with Jesus is because he teaches as no one else has taught before. 
They've had their rabbis, they've had their Pharisees, they've had their Sadducees, and yet Jesus is different. I wonder sometimes if we hear the gospel in time and that's it. What I mean by that is perhaps you've heard the gospel years and years ago. You walked the aisle sometime. Maybe you said a sinner's prayer, whatever that means. Maybe you repeated a few words after the preacher or whoever was in charge that day, an elder or a deacon. You got in the baptistry eventually, and you thought that that was it. Or you might attend church from time to time. You might go to a Bible study, a small group, something of that sort. But in all actuality, it really hasn't changed your life. It hasn't changed how you live from day to day, from hour to hour, from minute to minute. And you know what the problem is? Doesn't it all boil down to authority? Doesn't it all boil down to who's in charge? When I sin, when I lie, when I steal, when I covet, when I'm greedy, when I'm lustful, when I'm filling the blank for you, doesn't that all boil down to authority? Who's in charge? I mean, when Satan shows up in Genesis chapter 3, Satan begins his very dialogue with Adam and Eve by saying what? Did God really say? In other words, he's questioning God's authority. And Eve mentions, Adam knows what exactly God said, and yet even though they know what God said, this will do you harm. When you eat from the tree, when you follow that temptation, David, when you continue to look upon Bathsheba, when you gawk, when you gawk, when you look and you look and you look, this will do you harm. You will surely die. It's nothing new for us. We've all experienced this separation physically. We've experienced this separation, but most importantly, spiritually, we experience a separation from God. We know when we're not walking in the path in which God has called us to walk. It's about authority, is it not? I want you to notice here in Mark chapter 12, this is about authority. This is one of the things that our English translations, modern day translations, do us a disarm of. Is they provide chapters and verses. They're, we're a people who like easy accessibility, right? But I want you to remember the early translations, the early manuscripts had no chapters and verses. They're put for our benefit. And so before you read chapter 12, you have to look back in Mark chapter 11, 27 through 32. Don't take a look at it now. You can take a look at it later. But I want you to notice this entire text, this entire theme throughout the Gospel of Mark is all about authority. That's the same thing for us. Whether you're a religious person or whether you're not a religious person, I just heard this morning, and some of you probably saw the same study, some of the news outlets are reporting that a recent study came out that said 25% of people in North America claim Catholicism today. 25%. Does that strike anybody? That's not a really large number because I, I've grown up in places where Catholicism is quite large. The, the, the population here is... A big section of our community, we would say, is, is Catholic. So 25% doesn't sound like a lot. Another figure they used was 25% Southern Baptist. Now, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, so I, I know Southern Baptist is a large denomination in North America. So that didn't really strike me as strange. But i tell you what did strike me as strange. 25% Catholic, 25% Southern Baptist, a little bit of Methodist, but 25% of North America claim no religious affiliation at all. 
25%, a quarter of our population, maybe our neighbors, maybe our family members, maybe someone who you grew up with, maybe someone you were raised in a youth group, would claim no religious affiliation. Does that strike anybody else as almost disheartening or discouraging? i tell you what is encouraging about it is people's honesty. Because I wonder how many people are sitting in churches today would say, I'm not one of those, but maybe you really are. What I mean by that is you attend church, you come to a Bible study, you come to a small group, and yet you know over here you're that 25% that's just trying to make everybody else happy. You really don't believe what you claim to believe. Now how do I know that? Because there's still sin that's prevalent in your life. I'm not talking about being sinners, because we all sin every day of our life. I'm talking about sin having control over you. Sin having a pattern of bondage for you. When you meet Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about when you know Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about when you know about God. I'm talking about when you know. When you intimately know Jesus Christ. The Bible says that your bondage is broken. The suffering is over. You no longer have to make that decision to follow after your flesh. Now, have you ever thought about this before? Jesus Christ knew who exactly we were when he came to the cross and died. I mean, chew on that for a second. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, I think it's up here on the screen for you. Paul says it this way, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that the gospel? I mean, we can't do, we can't follow the law as we've been told to do. Paul would say the law is given so that we'll understand how much of a sinner we are and how much we're in need of a Savior. But the rub is that we still want to be the Lord of our lives. I mean, this text here, Mark chapter 12, it's, perhaps it's a salvation issue for some people. Perhaps it's a salvation text. But more importantly, it's probably a discipleship issue. Remember, Jesus is talking to religious people here in Mark chapter 12. They think they've got it figured out. How so? Because they follow the law. Now, we'll come to responsibility here in a bit. But I want you to understand, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God loved us so much that even knowing we were sinners, Jesus came and died for me. Jesus came and died for you. In fact, Jesus came and died for the entire world if they will only receive Jesus Christ. Church, that is the gospel. Have you ever thought about how God's love is persistent? How many of you need a persistent God? We've talked before about prevenient grace. The word prevenient means going before. There's nothing I have to offer. There's nothing you have to offer. We can't get enough degrees to hang on the wall. We can't get up and decide today to be more righteous today than we were yesterday. I can't get up and say, you know what, I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to be better today because we know, based upon what we've talked about in recent weeks, that religion always lets us down. The law will always let us down. And yet the good news is, God's love is persistent. How do we know that? We know it because of Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 3, Paul would say it this way, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, let me read that again, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works you had done by us in righteousness. Remember, we just can't do that, right? We've talked about it. Christianity is not a moral concept. It's not something that we just agree to be good. We talked just recently about 
Somebody asking Jesus, what must I do? I'm a good person. Jesus said, you're not a good person. No one is good except God alone. Remember that? But when he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is God hanging on the cross. This is God in the flesh making things right by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. I wonder if we understand that God's love is persistent, that God will never leave us alone, that that persistent grace, that prevenient grace, that going before, some of you are fishermen, I know, it's this idea of casting a line. And casting a line, I hate fishing. I know, some of you are offended by that. Just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind the, I just can't stand sitting and watching the bobber and wait, wait for that. I know that's not really fishing, but... I got to keep moving, right? I got, I got to, and, and I'm okay with us just visiting, but it's this idea of just sedentary that I just, I uh, can't do it. But I want you to know this morning, God is not sedentary. Sometimes you may feel that way. Sometimes you pray and you think, did God really act upon that prayer? Did God actually answer that prayer? And Satan would try to convince us that God doesn't care. I mean, think about the question: Did God really say? What's He trying to do to Adam and Eve? He's trying to convince them. That God doesn't have their best interests at heart. He's trying to create doubt. He does the same thing over and over and over for us, church. He tries to convince us that God doesn't care. He's out there somewhere, but he's not right here. That's what Satan would say. I know based upon my response, based upon my, my, my uh, um, past experience, and you know based upon your life experience, that God has always been there. You look back in hindsight and you say, how come I didn't realize God was always right there, even in the midst of a storm? God is always faithful. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God's love is persistent. And I think we all could agree that we need a persistent, we need a persistent God. Every time you look in the mirror, that proverbial mirror, and you recognize your own sinfulness, your own, your own issues, your own whatever it is that, that Satan attacks you with the most, you have to believe in a persistent God. You have to believe in a loving God. And not, may I say this, not love based upon the way the world defines love. In other words, Paul would say, there's going to come a point in time where people no longer want the truth. They just want their ears tickled. They just want to affirm their own sinfulness. But what is love if it's not telling the truth? This is where accountability comes in, right, Jackie? This is where if I have my, your best interest at heart, if you have my best interest at heart, and we've agreed to hold one another accountable, I'm, I'm obligated. You're obligated to tell me the truth. I'm obligated to tell you the truth. The problem is, is we don't have people in our world that like the truth. And so we just bury our head in the sand, or we separate and go our different directions. I mean, I mean think about... Think about the county judge as he has two people standing before him wanting a divorce, go their separate directions, all because they have irreconcilable differences because somebody, probably both of them, don't want to hear the truth. And yet, even despite the sin, God's love is persistent. God convicts these religious people here in Mark chapter 12. I want you to see that. But he gives them a parable. What's a parable? A parable is a short story that has a life meaning. I want you to talk about, I want to talk about expectations. I want to think about expectations as we move into 2019, into the future. Not just out there somewhere, but today and tomorrow and the next day. Notice this parable where Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, 
and they send, the owner sends person after person after person to tell them the truth, to help them to understand that they are just tenants over what he owns, and what do they do? They beat them, they refuse to listen, they refuse to listen, they refuse to listen, and finally the owner sends the son. You, You guys know this story, right? Doesn't this sound familiar? What did they do with Jesus? They killed him. And I want you to see why he sends each person back. Did you notice that? When the season came, it says in verse 2, he sent a servant to the tenants, what, for what reason? To get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is responsibility. It's not just receiving the gospel. See, the gospel is not just walking down the aisle, saying a few words, getting the baptistry, and going about your business. That's consumerism. We've talked about that in recent weeks. The gospel is about receiving to give, being healed to go out and be a small part of what God's doing in the world. We have no issues. I'm, I'm talking we, big broad strokes here. Most of the time we have no issues of receiving God's grace. We have no issues of receiving God's love. I'm, I'm all about John 3.16. All of you could probably quote John 3.16. The problem is not John 3.16. The problem is what do we do with that once we received the goodness of God It's the expectations of bearing fruit. We've talked about that over and over and over again, church. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we have to bear fruit. You'll remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. How so, Jesus? By teaching, by baptizing, by doing everything you've seen me do, by way of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, take a look at it later. It talks about bearing fruit. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we live in a consumeristic world, society, where everybody is all about love and joy, but their idea of love is not this idea of holiness. Their idea of love is let me do what I want to do. Don't judge me. Have you ever heard that before? You know why? Because they don't like the truth. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fig tree. Jesus walking into Jerusalem. He sees this fig tree. What does he do? He curses the fig tree. Why? Because it's accusations toward the Pharisees. It's accusation toward the Sadducees, toward the religious people of the day who are trying to point people to the law rather than pointing people to Jesus. They wanted to be a moral society. And Jesus is saying, it's not based upon the tree. Remember, we talked about this. It's not based upon the tree. The issue is not the tree. The issue is the religious people. They know about God, but they don't know God. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Do you hear the difference? In Isaiah chapter 5, some of you may think this parable a little bit strange. If you will, take a look back at Isaiah chapter 5. Hold your thumb there. If you're in your smart device, look at Isaiah chapter 5. Mark's notorious for looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Some of us in our Bible study on Sunday mornings have been going through some of the minor prophets, and they oftentimes look at the major prophets, one of those being Isaiah. 700 years, mind you, 700 years prior to Jesus Christ being born, Isaiah writes these words. And Mark is going to take these words from Isaiah chapter 5 and use them in Mark chapter 12. Listen to what the Old Testament prophet says. Let me sing for my beloved, he says, my love song concerning his vineyard. Already sounds familiar, doesn't it? My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
Have you ever read in the New Testament where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers or the laborers are few? Why would he say that? Because we've got too many people. Carol Butcher mentioned it to me Wednesday, I think it was. Maybe it was this morning, talking about pew sitters. Oftentimes in the church, we call those people oxygen thieves. We just come and we receive, but we never do anything with it. It says here, the vineyard is fertile. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. Notice, the vines are good. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. and He hoed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. That's, that's the whole point. Yield grapes. That's why you plant a vineyard. We, we want grapes. That's why he offers salvation for you because he wants the world to be saved. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, that's what he's asked us to do, right? Make disciples. When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. What's he talking about? Synopsis is judgment. It's the fig tree scenario. It's the Jews not, not showing people who Jesus is. Not, not pointing people to Jesus and therefore judgment occurs. I, I, let me offer this question to you this morning. I wonder if we're much like the Jews and that we just come and we receive. We come and we celebrate Jesus, but we never do anything about Jesus. We, we come and we're spiritual on Sunday or Wednesday or Thursday or at a Bible study, but we never do anything else. For the vineyard of the Lord, it says, the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The people of God, in other words. The men of Judah are His pleasant planning. And He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. What's the prophet saying? The prophet's saying there is no difference between the Jews, the people who should know God, and those that don't know anything about God. Now I wonder in Mark chapter 12 if Jesus is not saying the same thing when he gives the parable of the vineyard. When he's saying these, these religious people should know better, they should know Jesus Christ, they should recognize the Messiah, but as we've talked about in recent weeks, their eyes are blind to what Jesus is trying to teach them. Their ears are deaf to what Jesus is trying to teach them. You know why? Because they've become callous toward the Holy Spirit. I think that's what the text is, is showing us. So what? I mean, what does this make a difference for us today? A couple things I want to offer to you to consider. So if you're taking notes, please write down two things. Number one is this. Instead of recognizing you hear the gospel one time, I've mentioned to you before some of my story is I heard from a preacher when I was eight years old a Sunday night, and it felt like it was he and I in the church, all alone. And it wasn't, but that's the way it felt to me. And I guess there was some voice somewhere, my head, my soul, somewhere, not audible voice, but somewhere telling me that I needed to pay attention. Have you experienced that before? So I believe, in hindsight, that was the Holy Spirit. And so I responded, and I walked down the aisle, and I told the preacher that I was convicted, that I needed to change at eight years old. And eventually I was baptized, and um, I knew about God. I knew about Jesus. I was raised in the church, but hear me out. I knew about God. I knew about Jesus. I didn't really know God or know Jesus until I was in my early 20s. You hear the difference? You can go to church all day long and not be a Christian. All day long? 
all year long, your life long, and not be a Christian. You, you can stand and applaud Jesus Christ as he comes into Jerusalem, and you can wave palm trees and say, Hosanna in the highest, but only recognize a good rabbi on a donkey, and it go no farther. See, the issue is, is we think we hear the gospel one time, we respond, we say a few words, we get in the baptistry, and we go about our life, thinking that we're going to one day end up in heaven in the presence of God. But Scripture teaches us that gospel, the good news, is that something is, doesn't just occur one time. It should occur Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and every week of your life and every month of your life and every year of your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in, in other words, if we come and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us and you don't hear the gospel but one time throughout your life, oh man, you're missing something. Because the gospel is just as fresh today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead and allows us the opportunity to be restored to relationship with God our Father. So number one is the gospel is a recurring thing. It happens over and over and over again. Short example here before we move to number two. Baptism. I understand that we were in the baptistry one time. If you're there for the right reason, you're baptized one time. You, you don't need to be baptized again. But I would offer to you that baptism is an ongoing process. An ongoing process. You are, you have been baptized. You will be baptized. You are being baptized. You hear that? Immersion. 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 That's what creates the relationship between me and Jesus, me and God. It's not just this one-time thing of getting up there in the baptistry. But it's an ongoing process of being totally immersed in who Jesus Christ is. I hope that makes sense. If not, come to me after we get done here and, and I'll try to clarify that for you. Number two, it's not just hearing the gospel over and over again, but number two is, based upon this text, is we have a responsibility. The tenants had a responsibility to offer the grapes to the owner, right? We have a responsibility toward Jesus. That's what Jesus is getting at toward the religious people. We have a responsibility toward Jesus to stand before him and say, look what you've done, and by the way, you've done it through us. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking one day of standing before Jesus at the great white throne judgment when we stand there as even the church of Hillcrest Christian Church in McKinney, Texas. The elders are before us and we're all standing behind the elders and perhaps there's somebody that you've shared the gospel with, somebody that you've encouraged, somebody who's come to meet Jesus through what you've done, through what you've said, through God has done something through you to allow them to... Can you imagine... Can, can we all celebrate that? Wouldn't that be really cool? But what happens if there's just 40 of us, 50 of us, 60 of us, 20 of us who stand there and we think, where is Joe? Joe is in church every Sunday, but Joe's not here. I wonder where Joe is. Or, or so-and-so, she, she, she took care of the meals. She took care of, of everything. that we, we, we thought that she was really a follower of Jesus Christ. But where, where's she at? See, this is a text of discipleship. This is a text of what will you do post-baptism. What will you do when you leave this place? There's 25% of people, and I would say the number is probably a lot larger than that, but there's 25% of people that are honest enough to claim no religious affiliation. 
And I got to thinking, well, what about the percentage of those who claim to be agnostics or atheists? I would say that number is a lot larger now than it was in the 80s and 90s. So what do we do about it? These people are your neighbors. They're your coworkers. They're your family members. And instead of wringing our hands and saying, I'll pray for them. Okay, great, pray for them. But do something as well, right? Tell them about Jesus. And the way you tell them about Jesus, the way you walk in step with Jesus, the way you bear fruit is not just knowing Jesus on a surface level or knowing about God on a surface level, but actually having an intimate relationship because that's the best witness you can ever provide anybody else that needs Jesus. God, make it so. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, teach us what it means to not only receive salvation, but help us to understand our responsibility. God, you changed the world with 12 ordinary individuals. And you made them extraordinary, not because of who they were, but because of their relationship with you. I'm thinking about a text in Ezekiel where the prophet is standing there wondering what would happen to some dry bones. And God, our world needs some dry bones to begin to shake and to gather flesh and to get up and change the world. And that's what you call us to do, God. You ask us, no, you don't ask us. You demand that we bear fruit. And I pray, God, that you would hold our feet to the fire. Help us not just to be consumers of your salvation, as good as that is, but help us to be followers of Jesus Christ. And God, we can't do this without you. Help us to understand we, we can't take control. We can't continue with our idea of authority. We have to give you authority. We have to give you control. And yet we know, based upon experience, every time we do so, that you come through over and over and over again. Now help us to celebrate with you, God. Help us to celebrate what you're doing in this small group of believers, in this small pocket of McKinney, Texas, in this small part of the world. We'll give you the honor. We'll give you the glory. We'll always look to Jesus Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith. In his name I pray. Amen.